Good morning again. I believe it's been seven years since I was last with you. It was 2016, and if I'm not mistaken, it was your third anniversary when uh, I had the joy of preaching from 1 Corinthians. It was when you were meeting in the tennis stadium. And uh, what a joy it is now to be back with you again these many years later. Uh, as I said earlier, we do pray for you regularly. And uh, we consider it a privilege to be partners in the gospel in this country. And we've been partners with you from the very beginning. In fact, I was doing some digging in preparation for coming to address you in some of our old church newsletters from the 1970s. Now, this was the days before there was any evangelical church in Fujairah. You know the maternity hospital. It had been uh, set up here in 1967 by Christian missionary midwives, including Minnie Vandewig from the Netherlands. So the beginning of the Christian work here in Fujairah was that hospital. The founder of our church in Dubai, his name was Fritz Dorch, he was one of the founders, a, a German missionary, was also the one who helped to start the work here. So we have a kinship, a brotherhood with you, that goes all the way back to 1967. Well, it was about a decade after that, February 1979, when the health authorities here in Fujairah ordered the maternity hospital to be completely repainted and the whole veranda area uh, completely fly-screened or face permanent closure this is because one of the babies who had been born there was found uh, with a case of tetanus. And these last-minute regulations were impossible to comply with. Uh, the place was staffed by women. Uh, they were busy delivering babies. They had no paint. They had no ladders. So our church newsletter says a group of men from the Dubai church went up the next Friday and were joined by a team of seven from the Aline Oasis Hospital. Everybody worked and prayed very hard and within a week the work was done, the inspectors were satisfied, and the doors were open again, back in business. One year before that I, I noticed that some of the church members from Dubai had built some kind of a garage for the nurses. And there was a lot of support, a lot of interaction between our church and the work here in Fujairah. Uh, many and the others would come to Dubai in those days for R&R, &R, uh, including celebrating their birthdays. Regarding the beginning of that hospital here, uh, midwife Minnie wrote, at first people did not trust us much, and so we only had people coming to us when they were really in trouble. Their customs were terrible. What a mess people were in sometimes. They also told tales about us which were not true. So many people were afraid of us. However, every year, the number of babies increased because those who had been to the hospital told relatives of the time of rest and good treatment. Well, I think that Fujairah has never been an easy place to be the church. Even today it isn't. I mean, we're grateful for this meeting place, but it's not exactly easy to find. The population here in Fujairah is friendly, but not exactly easy to engage with the gospel. 
I was thinking about it. I believe you could have qualified for a chapter in Mes McConnell's book, which was titled Church in Hard Places. But it's not just Fujairah. In many ways, it's the whole UAE. In some ways, it's everywhere. I mean, even in the outside world, think of the country you come from originally. Christians have never been particularly admired or appreciated. The New York Times just said last week, Christianity's got a branding problem. So in many parts of the world, Christianity becomes increasingly unpopular, unappreciated. And it's kind of true. I mean, the church is compromised. It is comprised of ordinary, imperfect people who don't always live up to their calling. We confess that. People who know Christ, but yet who still need his forgiveness. I mean, there are plenty of warts and blemishes on the Christian church. But is that the whole story? Is that who we really are? And is that who we will be one day? Well, this morning, Isaiah pulls back the curtain and introduces us to the church as she really is and as she will be one day. So if you have your Bible, please open with me to Isaiah chapter 60. We'll pick it up at verse 1. Isaiah 60. You can find it there in your bulletin. We're going to walk uh, kind of verse by verse through this chapter. But here's what I want you to see this morning. If I were just going to summarize it, I want you to see that even though your church here in Fujairah may seem ordinary and uninspiring, even though it may be difficult and inconvenient living as a church here, still, in reality, this assembly is by far the most significant meeting taking place in Fujairah this week or any week. Here we have a vision of the future from the standpoint of an inspired prophet, Isaiah, chapter 60. Look at verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Isaiah was a prophet. He was writing some 700 years before Jesus Christ. And what he gives us is a forecast of the future of the church. Not as the church is so often mocked by her critics today, but the church as she really is and as she really will be one day. This morning, we're going to look at three portraits of the church. Okay, three portraits of the church. First, she is glorious. The church is glorious. Now, this comes as a surprise when we recall who God's people really are apart from Jesus Christ. Just look back at chapter 59. Turn back a page to 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Now, throughout this 
prophecy of Isaiah, he's been exceedingly clear and candid about the fact that God's people are really, in and of themselves, as wicked as any of the other nations in the world. There's nothing special or unique about them except God had chosen them. He had rescued them from slavery. He set them apart as his royal representatives. But despite every advantage, the majority of the people of Israel were always ungodly. They were unbelievers. And so they were defeated, deported, and sent far away into exile as an expression of God's judgment. But one day, Isaiah foresaw a day when God's people would be totally transformed. That's what we see in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, when would all this happen? Was this a vision of when they would return from exile in Babylon? Well, not even close, because the Old Testament describes their actual return in disappointing, even dismal terms. There was when the second temple was built, some of those who remembered the first were crying. They were weeping because of the, uh, the sad state of affairs there. Now, here we have the church of Jesus Christ victorious. This is a future vision of the church glorified. This is a vision of two things, really, just in these opening verses. What Jesus will do for his bride when he comes again and what he already is beginning to do now. So first, consider the future-oriented vision. So this is what, what God will do for his bride, looking into the future. He describes her as a city, and here we have all kinds of Old Testament symbolism, which we saw alluded to in the Revelation passage earlier. There's, there's the reference to a temple, which we're going to see a little bit later in chapter 60. There are walls and gates. And then look at verse 14 of Isaiah 60. Look at verse 14 at the end of the verse. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Zion is uh, a word that we've been singing a lot. I think it's one of those Christian words that sometimes people sing, but they don't really know what it is. Uh, let me tell you, Zion was just the name of a hill in Jerusalem where God lived in the temple. And as the Bible unfolds, the word Zion comes to mean more than just the building in Jerusalem. It stands for God's residence in heaven from whence he will come again. So here in chapter 60, we have the ultimate Zion coming down to earth from heaven. Friends, this is a picture of what will happen when Jesus Christ returns and the glory of the Lord will rise and shine upon God's people. And how does the church respond when that happens? What John tells us in 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So when Christ returns in splendor and glory, we with, with resurrected bodies will see him for who he is and we will instantaneously be transformed in this glorious vision. It's a word of resurrection. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come. And it shines all the more brightly against the dark backdrop of all the brokenness of this world. Verse 2. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. So in the same way that Tabitha was cold and dead in the book of Acts, she was totally unresponsive until Peter said, Arise, so it will be when Christ returns. When Jesus commanded four days dead Lazarus, come out. Lazarus had no power to comply. But Christ spoke a word that brought life with it. When he said, Lazarus, come out, the word empowered him to rise. So will it be for you and me on the day that Jesus returns. All of us who know Christ, all of us who have turned to him, trusted in his righteousness alone, we will rise. We will shine for our light will have come. So this is the, the future event when Christ returns the second coming. But it's not only that. I want you to see that this is a vision of something that somehow has already begun among us. What did Jesus call his followers in the Sermon on the Mount? Anybody remember? Remember, he's on the mountain, he's addressing this uh, mass of peasants. What did he call them? You are the light of the world. So the world is plunged in darkness, spiritual alienation, you know, where the blind lead the blind and they fall into the pit together. So the problem with the world is not optical, it was moral. They love darkness instead of the light. Jesus said, referring to the world, men love darkness. But when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, standing on the mountainside, he's looking over the, the crowd of these who are flocking to him. What was his answer to the human dilemma? His answer was, you are the light of the world. Ordinary, unschooled, seemingly unimportant people were the hope of the entire world, according to Jesus Christ. This applies to us today. You know, you and me, we're ordinary people. We may have read no philosophy at all. And yet we know and we understand more about life than the most renowned philosophers and scholars who don't know Jesus Christ. Now, how can this possibly be? It's because of who Jesus is. He said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And then listen to this. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. So for those of us here this morning who have placed our faith in Christ, we have received what Jesus calls the light of life. However ordinary we may be, we are the ones who have the message that makes sense of life. Now, if you're here this morning as one who's not a Christian, I don't mean you grew up in a Christian tradition. I mean, you're one who's not been born again. You've not crossed that line and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Understand this. The sole cause of the problems in the world today, including your personal problems, 
is that we're separated from God by nature. I mean, you and I were created to know Him, to enjoy fellowship with Him, and to reflect Him to the world, but each of us has distorted that picture. So our light has become darkness. We've chosen that way. Every problem, jealousy, marital infidelity, immorality, lust, anger, envy, all of it can be traced back to the selfishness of sin. But there is a way back to God because Jesus is the light. He came all the way from heaven. He lived the perfect life, shining God's character perfectly like you and I did not do. But he chose to die on the cross in order that he might be a substitute for anyone who would ever turn and trust in him. Understand this. When Jesus died on the cross, it was a sin offering. It wasn't merely the execution of an innocent man. It wasn't merely a vague expression of God's love, though it was that. No, it was a, a redemption. A price was paid so that whoever would repent and believe in Christ would be delivered from his or her sin. And all of us who truly embrace Jesus Christ, he says, are the light of the world. So what does it look like practically for Emmanuel Church for Jarrah to be the light of the world? And what does it mean that Christians are the light of the world? Well, think of church history and all of the good that the church has done throughout the ages. And I'm thinking here of prison reform, medical care, the establishment of uh, orphanages, abolition of slavery. I mean, in all of these areas, the followers of Jesus have led the way. Or you could just think of Midwife Minnie at the Pajera Midwife Hospital, who recalled of uh, the founding in 1967 in Fajera, she was asked at one point, what was the infant mortality rate back then? She said, if you had two out of six or seven live, it was good. There was malaria. There was diarrhea. She recalled later, we had very little to start with. We used orange boxes for furniture and were very glad to get some beds from a kind doctor in Dubai. The people, referring to the Emirati, the indigenous people, they were so poor that what we had seemed good to them. Mind you, everything for the work and for ourselves came over from RAK in just two cars, the journey taking seven hours because there was no road. What amazing lengths, all to share the good news of Jesus Christ with needy people. What amazing lengths all to care for these babies and these vulnerable mothers. They were the light of the world. So now let me ask you about you. Uh, in what ways are you the light of the world here in Fujairah? Because this wasn't just for the 1960s or 70s. I mean, what are you doing to shine like stars in the universe? Are you getting involved in the community in any way? Are you getting to know local people to establish relationships with them? Are you engaged in mercy ministry to the poor? 
in any way. I know it's hard to do here, but are you thinking creatively? Are you inviting people into your home? If you have a home that is suitable to invite someone in for a meal, are you doing that? You remember Jesus promised that he said, invite people into your home, not those who can repay you and and invite you to their home. No, invite the poor and the needy. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Are you sharing the gospel with people here? I don't mean are you here vaguely for Christian witness. I mean are you articulating the words that communicate gospel truth to those who don't know Christ? Friends, these are practical ways that you will shine like stars in the universe. How is the church so glorious? Well, it's not because she's the sun shining her virtue and her sophistication on the people of Fujera. No, it's that she's the moon reflecting in some pale way the love of Christ that's been lavished upon her. Our shining is reflective of the love that we've already received in Christ. So I commend to you pursuing righteousness so that you will shine like stars in the universe. I mean, that's what glory is, by the way. Glory is when God shines publicly. And glory is another one of those words, kind of like Zion. We, we throw it around in church, but can you define glory? Glory is just the shining, the radiance of something unimaginably great. It's, it's splendor bringing God's radiance to us. As Jesus' friends said of him, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. In Jesus Christ, the church is and the church will be unimaginably glorious. Well, there's a second portrait here in this chapter that I want you to see. The second portrait is this. She is global. She is glorious. Secondly, she is global. Notice the magnetic attraction to Zion. From all over the planet, people are being drawn in the direction of the city of God. Look at verse 3. Lift up your eyes all around and see. Excuse me, verse 3. And nations shall come to you in your light. Kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephra. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. This vision is dressed in Old Testament clothing. But these are symbols that are actually describing the church. E.J. Young said, the prophet is presenting New Testament truth in figures belonging to the Old Testament. So when it says in verse 7, rams will be accepted on my altar, we shouldn't think 
that this predicts a revival of future animal sacrifices after Christ's return. Rather, this is an expression of commitment to the Lord by the Gentiles who would enter into the church. Or when he says, I will beautify my house, this doesn't point to the rebuilding of God's temple. It points to the building of God's people. What Paul said in Ephesians 2 is the holy temple of the Lord, the church. So I just want to be clear about something in Isaiah 60. It has nothing to do with the city of Jerusalem in the modern state of Israel. It has everything to do with the new Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ, that will one day come down out of heaven from God. You know, it's important to see when we read an Old Testament prophet like this, how it finds fulfillment in the New Testament. So the way we understand this is by sitting at the feet of Jesus and the apostles and seeing, for example, how Revelation 21 interprets Isaiah 60. It's important to see that the, there's a unity of Scripture and that the Old and New Testaments fit together in fulfillment. And I was just noticing on your book table there at the back, a book by T.D. Alexander called From Eden to New Jerusalem. If you want to grow in your ability to read Scripture uh, as a unity and as the apostles did, this is the kind of book that will help you do that. So I commend this highly to you. I hope that one of you will pick this up and commit to read it. T.D. Alexander's From Eden to New, the New Jerusalem. The New Testament calls the church a spiritual temple with living stones comprised of the people, the members of the church. The New Testament book of Hebrews talks of believers as having come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. So the church has become a magnet for the whole world. You see all the kings and people riding in on camels. This describes the modern missions movement. Look at verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Sons from afar, daughters carried on the hip. These are the Gentile nations that are drawn to the glory of the global church. Of course, it's not the church's light. It's the Lord's light that's reflected off of the church. So Zion is more like the moon than the sun. So in comes the abundance of the sea, the wealth of the nations, verse 5. Notice the eagerness of these people. Do you, do you sense their zeal? Riding on camels from the outlying regions, verse 6. Coming from all directions. These are not people who are forced against their will. No, they're speeding forward to join the church. They're praising God as they come, bringing good news. They're bringing all they have to devote to the service of the Lord, all their flocks and herds, their occupations and talents and credentials, and from all points of the compass. Midian and Sheba are in the south, probably Yemen. Ephra is to the east in Iran. Kedar is to the north, so east, north, south, well, what about the west? The Mediterranean, verse 8. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first, that's Spain. 
to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. So what we see here is all four points of the compass, a worldwide surge into the new Zion. They're coming on the wings of the wind, like flying clouds, humming pigeons, finding their nests. It's very different from the Old Covenant. I mean, formerly in the Old Covenant, God was working through one ethnic people. But not here. Israel had been enslaved to the nations, imprisoned in exile, verse 10. In my wrath, I struck you. But now, all the nations are flocking into Israel. The spiritual city is jammed with incoming traffic from all these nations. They can't even close the gates. Look at verse 11. Your gate shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. It's like when King Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. You know, Lebanon sent the best of its cedars for the production of the sanctuary. So in comes the best of the nations, bringing tithes and talents to the city of God. Even kings are serving God's people. This shows the zeal of the new citizen, bringing in his artistic ability, cultural achievements. Every citizen of the city loves to be there. So the CEOs among us are no more entitled than the unemployed among us. In Christ, there is no male or female, slave or free. All are one in Him. Regardless of how we come to the city, the important thing is that we get into the city. Because look at the alternative to the city of God, verse 12. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. So to stay outside the city is to be cursed of God. That means people who will not bow to Jesus Christ, those who will not believe the good news, will be eternally condemned. This is a hard word of judgment. I mean, I, this isn't popular to say today. Nowadays, it's popular to say, well, the, the, the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Christians, I mean, they fundamentally believe the same thing. Be good to your neighbor. And if you try to do that, then you will be okay on Judgment Day. But no, this is a claim that is very exclusive. Only those who enter the city of Zion will be delivered. It may be natural to want to believe in a God who saves everybody no matter what they believe, but it isn't biblical. You understand that? It may be natural, but it isn't biblical. The truth is, there's only one culture of salvation. It's the culture of the church of Jesus Christ. 
It's to enter the city of Zion and so be blessed. Friends, in Jesus Christ, we've come to that city. The gospel of Jesus is superior in every way to the old covenant. Matthew Henry said, when we had baptism in the place of circumcision, the Lord's Supper in the place of Passover, and a gospel ministry in the place of a Levitical priesthood, we had gold instead of brass. Look at verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So it's an amazing new picture. No more slavery in Egypt. Now your slave masters, it says, are peace and righteousness. There's no more need for defensive barriers. It says now you will call your walls salvation. Your gates, you'll call them praise. So the end times peace has invaded the present. And it now characterizes the church of Jesus Christ more and more. The New Testament sees this begun already in Jesus Christ. But still it awaits a final fulfillment when he returns. You know, when Jesus was born, uh, those wise men, the Magi, they came from the east bearing gifts. All in fulfillment of verse 6. Second half of verse 6 where it says, They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that they fell down and they worshipped Him. And they offered up their gifts. It's very interesting about all these nations coming into the city, bringing their diversity and their wealth. Isaiah never suggests that they're contributing their insights to the church. I mean, there's no hint that their old pagan religions were somehow sufficient or that there were many ways to heaven. I mean, that's a, an idea that's popular today, but it's not what Isaiah is saying. They're bringing their gold and their silver, verse 9, for the name of the Lord your God. So they've abandoned their former religion. They've joined the new spiritual culture of the church. Isaiah 60 shows the magnetic appeal, the attractional power of the people of God. So, is Fujairah seeing that in your church? One of our beloved traditions in Dubai is that we, uh, two or three times a year, we have a picnic outside at one of the parks, and almost the whole church meets there, and it's, it's a large assembly of people enjoying one another's company, eating one another's foods, throwing the football, encouraging each other with spiritual conversation. So I was just curious, do you all do things like that here? Good. Good. Keep doing that. I mean, this is what the world cannot match. Uh, exercise gyms. Uh, they try to emulate Christian fellowship. Right? They try to fulfill social and spiritual needs for secular people who have rejected Christ. Or maybe yoga. One lady said, I was raised Catholic, 
but yoga is really the practice where I find my experience of contemplation. And then I noticed one gem promises to help you find your soul. Well, God made us in His image. I mean, He made us relational creatures. We long for importance. We long for significance in life. But not even Facebook. Not even the gym. Not even CrossFit can compete with what Isaiah is describing here, the ultimate community, the church of Jesus Christ. Friends, don't forget, your local church here is God's evangelism plan for Fujairah. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. So what are you doing to strengthen the community of this congregation? Let me ask you this. Do you spend time with the believers who are here during the week? Or do you mainly only see them on Sundays? Do you treat the church more like a cinema where you, know, you go to receive some passive entertainment? Or do you treat the church more like a family where you go to serve and to know people and to encourage and strengthen? Friends, the church is glorious. And if you look around the room, you see she is global. And then just one final thing that I wanted to share with you. The church is guarded. She is glorious, global. She is guarded. That is, she is eternally secure. Look at verse 19. Isaiah 60, verse 19. The sun shall be no more. The sun shall be no more your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your, your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more do go down. Nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. And right here in Isaiah 60, I want you to see we come to the very borders of heaven and we peer inside. I mean, imagine a glory that is so radiant, so resplendent, there, that there is no need for a sun or moon. Imagine a universe like that. I mean, clearly this takes us beyond history as we know it. It takes us to a new heaven and a new earth it's a day like no other in verse 20, where it says the sun shall no more go down. A unique day of unending, unending light in a new creation, where the Lord will be there personally. This is a glory we, we not only will see, it's a glory we'll somehow share. I mean, when Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of glory, when the dead are raised and we behold Him for who He is, we will instantaneously be transformed. So certain, so surely will this happen, that Paul said those He justified, He also glorified. He speaks of it in the past tense, as though it's a done deal. All we can say is that this will be inexpressibly wonderful. 
Look at the end of verse 20. It says, your days of mourning will be ended. You know, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. So, do you know something about mourning? Do you something, know something about the brokenness of this world? Well, if you know Jesus Christ, your days of mourning are real, but they're numbered. On that day, the church will be guarded, gated, secure. There will be no enemies at all. There will be no threats. Only the perfectly pure, only the morally flawless will live there. Verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall all possess the land forever. Friends, this is where you're headed if you know Jesus Christ. I mean, today, I know you struggle with sin. You struggle with boredom sometimes. You struggle even with a gathering like this. It seems mundane. It seems eminently ordinary. You struggle with these things. But on that day, Jesus will present you radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy. This is what Isaiah looked ahead to see, a day when the whole world would be filled Reflecting his glory, not just the land of Palestine, but the whole planet. Friends, this is your destiny if you know Jesus Christ. So are you disappointed with the church? I remember years ago, somebody telling me, you know, the church, Jesus is okay, but the church is just a human institution. I think Isaiah would disagree. Because what does God call the church in verse 21? The branch of my planting. The work of my hands. That I might be glorified. So God is the careful gardener. Selecting. Placing. Tending. It's all ultimately his work. It's for his splendor. And so we can trust him for the growth of his church. What did he promise in verse 22? The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. And he staked his reputation on it when he said, I am the Lord. All of this means is that the church is guarded, gated, eternally secure. Even though we're not home yet, we still remain susceptible to all kinds of suffering and sin and frailty but the Lord closes the chapter in its time I will hasten it so are you waiting for this vision to be fulfilled you know John's vision of Revelation closes with these words of a holy city coming down from heaven it says I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. I know many people have given up on the church. There are probably people in Fajera who call themselves Christians and who don't even attend a congregation like this. 
they'd just as soon avoid the inconvenience. They'd just as soon bypass the messy relationships that are involved in a fallen world. But friends, they're missing out. Charles Bridges said, the church is the mirror that reflects the radiance of the divine character. So the church is the divine scene in which the perfections of the Lord are being displayed to the emirate of Fujairah. So where do you fit in that grand scene? What role are you playing in this new society? You know, friends, you have a great heritage in your history. I mean, what, what role did midwife Minnie play in the 60s and 70s? You know, she wrote to our church, thanking them for the visits and the friendship and the, the help. And she observed that in the maternity hospital, especially at Christmas time, many said, we certainly had plenty of reminders here of the weakness and dependence of a newborn baby. But, and then listen to this that many said in the, in the 1970s, let us not forget that the same Jesus is now seated in glory, having died for our sins and risen again. He is the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord over the UAE. He's the Lord over our lives in a special way because we have committed ourselves into his keeping. Well, friend, is that true of you? Have you committed yourself into the keeping of the Lord? Let's pray.